Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to our very first My Name Story Foundation Ask the Expert live event. It's across all our media platforms, and a big thank you for joining us tonight. I am absolutely delighted to welcome Professor Kevin Talbot. He's a regular attendee of our Scientific Advisory Board. Professor Talbot is a consultant neurologist and Professor of Motor Neuron Biology, Head of Department at the University of Oxford Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences. I think that very much qualifies him as an expert. Uh, and also with us tonight is Sean McGrath. And Sean is the My Name Study Foundation Medical Strategy Lead. And Sean has been instrumental in taking us forward over the last four and a half, nearly five years and has been with us every step of the way. So a big warm welcome to both Sean and Kevin. Evening, everybody. Good evening, all. Thank you for that very kind introduction, Jill. Great stuff. Great to see you. Um, it was really Doddy himself um, who was the inspiration behind tonight's discussion and the first, we hope, in a series of Ask the Expert events. Doddy always says um, he's fortunate to be able to talk to a, just a fantastic panel of researchers and world-renowned experts in the field of MND and ask those difficult questions and challenge them and find out what's actually going on um, in in the world of MND research and care. And he wanted to give the wider MND community and, and people, more people living with motor neuron disease, the opportunity to hear directly from the people leading research. So you have set the agenda. Uh, we asked what you would like us to cover uh, and you came back to us, which was, was fantastic. And it's very interactive. We're delighted that you've already been in touch with us over the course of tonight. We'll be checking our channels. And if there are further questions that you want to raise, uh, please do so. We'll get through as many of them as we can. And we'll also try and answer questions that we haven't got a chance to answer uh, online um, and via our website as well. Uh, but we're going to kick off tonight with a conversation around the causes of motor neuron disease. It's well, I think you'll agree, Kevin and Sean, a really big question to kick off with. But Kevin, maybe can you give us some insight into the causes of what is a very complex disease? OK, so obviously we use the word disease because we think we're talking about one thing. And as doctors in the clinic, we are talking about one thing. We can agree that what we see in front of us is a condition that we call motor disease. And we would agree with doctors in the 19th and 20th century in exactly the same way. So there's no argument about what it is clinically, what you see in front of you. The real question that uh, I think is important for people is, what's the reason behind the disease? So what we say is, what's the biology? What's going on inside the nervous system of somebody who gets motor disease? And that has implications. Understanding that is the key to understanding why people get the disease why some people are different with the disease and how ultimately we're going to treat it. So if we look at it from that perspective, it's not one thing. Um, if you simply take the view that some patients come into clinic and you take a family history from everybody. So I mean, you ask them, what did your parents die of? Do you have brothers and sisters? Are they alive or dead? Your grandparents, your aunts, uncles, and you build this family tree. And about 10% of the time, you hear the story that somebody else in the family has had motor neuron disease. And 90% of the time, you don't get that story. And in those 10% of people who do have a family history, we have identified in about 70% of those a gene mutation that seems to be the key reason why they've got motor neuron disease. So that already tells you that there are two, at least two types of disease. And in fact, because there are multiple genes that can be mutated, 
to lead to the same thing, to motion neuron disease. That means that each of those are sort of individual and distinctive causes of the disease that might ultimately behave differently and might even need different treatments. Those other 90%, we think that your genetics is important. I mean, everything that happens to us in life, particularly when the body goes wrong, has some kind of genetic influence. But because it's complicated, not just one gene, it's many genes, all mixed in together. When you have children, you and your partner come together and you mix those up to have your children. So each of your children inherits a different mixture, a different mixture from the person who got motion neuron disease. So in that sense, it can have a genetic influence, but not be passed on in any simple way. But of course, a really interesting thing for me is if somebody has a mutation in a gene that gives them motion neuron disease in their 50s or 60s, how is it that they can live for decades with that genetic mutation? They can develop as a human being in the normal nervous system in all its complexity. Um, they're somehow tolerating that genetic mutation until aging comes along. And so we think a number of things happen in the aging nervous system, which allow the disease to show itself, even if you've got a genetic mutation. And what, what are those things? Well, we know that cells in the nervous system can acquire damage from which they can't recover. And that may actually be occurring in all of us at a certain rate. So if you add that damage to a genetic mutation, you might be able to trigger the disease. So some people therefore are susceptible because of those mixed factors of having a genetic um, sort of makeup that primes the nervous system and then aging comes along and introduces some more errors. So in that sense, we are now thinking of motion neuron disease as what's called a multiple hit disease. You actually need multiple things to happen to trigger the disease. And that might seem like a really challenging thing to say because it means that there isn't a simple cause. Eating rhubarb or too much uh, of a particular kind of environment is not the answer. Uh, there's something very complicated going on. And in each individual, multiple things have to happen. And in different individuals, perhaps different things have to happen. And I think that means that we really have to understand that complexity before we're going to be able to treat everybody successfully. So that would be my opening sort of statement. Sean, uh, listening to Kevin, I know you will have some keen questions to just broaden out a little bit about hereditary familial MND and, and the, the way that genes can affect how, how it's caused. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, I, I mean, I, we all know it's a very complex disease and uh, and you outlined that i think very ably now i just uh, i wondered if there's been um, if there's a way of explaining easily uh, the difference between someone that is that is born as you said with familial disease or familial um, genes that increase their risk and 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 the difference between that and and someone that that genes malfunction during their normal life uh, is there is there a difference and how might that difference manifest itself well <clears throat> I mean, the reason we all look different and we all look different as we age is that we are made up differently. You know, even identical twins age differently and look different because in addition to that, that sort of hard wiring in your genetics that you know, is there at conception and is in every cell of your body, the way that those genes are actually expressed and revealed. So, I mean, it, of course, we're talking about genes as assuming that everybody knows what we mean. Well, we have about 20,000 genes and each one has a particular signature, which allows it to give the body the signal to produce a protein. And a protein is part of the way that we build ourselves. And proteins are either structural things like bricks and mortar in your house, 
all their things that make the house work, like the gas and the electricity. So it's a message to make a cell functional. So the way that genes can be switched on and off at uh, different times of life, the way that the genes are expressed in response to the environment tells you that genetics is a very dynamic thing. Even though you're born with a genetic code, which is sort of fixed, actually the way those genes are actually revealing themselves and producing proteins can vary in response to health, disease, environment, all sorts of things, and aging. And actually, there are probably some random things that happen, which are not really easy to predict. Um, that might be kind of chance events. And in this respect, motor neuron disease is very like cancer. They're kind of genetic diseases because they depend on the way that genes are expressed in cells, but they're not necessarily inherited because many of the things that need to happen to turn that cell into one that's ill happen after ge the genetics has been sort of fixed through inheritance from your parents. So, so, so genetics and inheritance are not exactly the same thing. Um, as you said in your opening, and, and as we've learned through our better understanding of one, the disease, and two, how our genes work and how important they are to, to the way that we live and, and the way that we develop, if you 10% of people who are diagnosed with MND have got this familial link to the disease, and they can be tested, and that shows that they have this particular gene. So if you're a, a member of your family, a parent has uh, it has is recognized as being a, you know somebody who has been diagnosed as a result of being in that ten percent, how likely is it then that the other members of their family will then develop MND? And is there genetic testing? You know, is that something that's advised? I know there's all sorts of ethics around it as well, but I just feel as I know it's 10%, but what we learn from that 10% has a big impact on the, the, the rest of the MND population, doesn't it? So what, we, yeah, what we're talking about with that 10% are those people in whom we can actually document a gene being inherited or a mutation being inherited because we're seeing the disease appearing in different generations. If you have one first-degree relative, meaning a parent or a sibling, brother or sister, with the disease and no other family history at all, then your chance of getting motor neuron disease is very low. It's, you know, less than... It's about 1%, roughly. So this family history that we can get from some people tells us that those other people in the family might be at risk. And if you have, are the son or daughter of uh, a father or mother who gets motor neuron disease, and there's clearly a family history, and we can do a testing clinic and pick up that genetic mutation, then we are likely to be able to predict what your risk is. And it's typically around 50% of carrying that genetic mutation. Because if your father carries a genetic mutation, we have two copies of each gene, there's a 50-50 chance of that that sort of gene carrying the mutation being passed on rather than the purely healthy or normal copy. So that, that's the sort of risk of carrying the gene. Now, there's more complication because, as I said earlier, if you've got a genetic mutation, whether it's manifested, meaning whether it expresses its uh, bad behaviour, if you like, depends on all sorts of other factors, and it certainly depends on ageing. So you could, you could say that all those people out there who carry genetic mutations that lead to motor neuron disease, if none of them live past the age of 35, we would see very, very few people with motor neuron disease. So it's got to be something about getting older as well. So, you know, what you have to do is take into account in predicting an individual's risk, whether they come from this family with uh, a gene being passed on, 
the aging uh, of an individual. So what we do, we, we come out with figures where we say, well, if you live to the age of 85 and you carry this mutation, your risk of motor neuron disease is X, you know, 80, 90% or, or whatever. And it may be different for individual genes. So it, it is actually extremely complicated and requires either a genetic specialist or a neurologist like myself who's got training in genetics to actually look into this, explain it. The other question that comes up all the time is, well, you know, I've got one parent with motor neuron disease and what can I can I have a test that will will prove that I will never get the disease? And I'm afraid that's not possible. Because even where we have a family history, about 20 or 30% of the time we don't identify the gene error, meaning there are more gene errors out there to identify that we haven't yet found. So it's actually very difficult to prove somebody could never get motor neuron disease. The only way you can give clear information is if you find the genetic mutation in the parent, and then you could test the rest of the family. But that's something that's very, very complicated, shouldn't be undertaken lightly, and requires people to consider all of the pros and cons and to have genetic counselling. And I would simply say we're all carrying genetic errors around that one day might lead to disease. And we sort of live with that, you know. I mean, it might be heart disease. I mean, I come from a family where everyone gets heart disease. So, I, I, you know, I know that that is something I'm at risk of. And we're, we're optimistic individuals as humans. We can cope with that uncertainty. If you unlock the box and you do a genetic test and somebody's not prepared for the result, that can have very severe consequences because you've turned somebody who is uncertain but coping with that into somebody who has a certain piece of news which they may or may not be able to deal with. So we go to extreme lengths to support people and counsel them before we undertake genetic testing. The, as, we, as you've very eloquently explained then, that there's, there's 10% of this familial risk of, of MND and some go on to develop it. And we've identified some of the genes that are involved in that. Uh, um, but obviously a huge number of people are given this diagnosis and, and they are termed sporadic, i.e. they're it's not part of a family history, it's not a hereditary uh, gene that's been passed down. And so we look at all the different reasons that, that these different factors may impact on that individual that leads to the diagnosis of MND. Um, and anecdotally, you know, we all talk about this. And I think the very first time we sat together with a, a scientific advisory board, we discussed the fact that quite often the people that we talk to who are diagnosed have taken part in strenuous physical activity and uh, and regular strenuous physical activity such as running triathlon uh, cycling lots of you know all the different things that we do to to stay fit and healthy um and the question has been is there a link between high levels of fitness and routine exercise and mnd Okay, very important question. I get asked it a lot, and I'm afraid the answer, yet again, is not simple. I'll start by saying this. 50,000 people run the London Marathon every year, and they don't come to my clinic or to any other major neuro disease clinic. So the vast majority of people who undertake strenuous exercise are doing themselves good. They cannot do themselves any harm. Last week, I walked 120 kilometres across the Alps, so I'm not frightened of of exercise. Um, if you look in your clinic, I mean, I've seen 3,000 people with motion neuron disease in the last 22 years. And you begin to get a sense that perhaps they're not a random selection of the population. So, for example, 
we see very few people who are what's called morbidly obese. Most people are fairly slim. We see very few people who've got a big fat set of hospital notes with many different conditions like cancer and diabetes. I mean, there are some, but actually over and over again, you, you see people who've really not had much in the way of medical problems. They've got a thin set of hospital notes. They're physically active and they're a little bit thinner. And that is a, a global kind of trend, if you like. I mean, that means that the population of people who get motion disease might be a little different from those people who don't. In an individual, it's very, very difficult to say that being thin or doing exercise or eating this or the other made any difference. What you're looking at when you make those kind of statements are large groups of people. And, you know, it means that there's a small difference between a thousand people who get motor neuron disease overall and a thousand people who don't, assuming you control for everything else. You might say, well, in that thousand patients who get motor neuron disease, on average, they have done slightly more exercise than the people who didn't. And that seems to be emerging as a, a reproducible uh, piece of evidence. Now, what does it mean? Well, it could mean that if you're good at exercise, and if you are good at exercise, you're going to end up in the army or doing competitive sport or just simply being somebody who likes doing exercise and doing marathons, uh, that maybe there are some genetic factors that make you good at those things that also are very good, you know, when you're, when you're younger, but actually later in life, they come with a bit of a penalty. Remember that the, the part of the nervous system that's affected in motor neuron disease is the bit that we associate with voluntary movement. So I decide I'm going to move my hand and the network of connections in the nervous system that lets me move my hand in that way is the bit that goes wrong in motor neuron disease. So that is a, it's a very human kind of bit of a nervous system. It's evolved rapidly in the last uh, few million years. So we are good with our hands. We walk upright. We're good at endurance walking. There are many things that we are good at as humans that we've had to acquire, if you like, in evolution fairly recently. Now, it's just possible that those, those kind of characteristics uh, may come with a small penalty. That system, which has been sort of souped up in recent uh, years by evolution, is a little bit vulnerable. So actually, whether you did the exercise or didn't do the exercise, you might still, get, if you're destined to get motion neuron disease because of all those complex factors we talked about, doing the exercise may not be part of it. The alternative is that you have this background of susceptibility and that doing the exercise could trigger the disease by, you know, well, it could be a number of mechanisms. It could be by, you know, driving that system, which is vulnerable at a very high level. And that might just tip it over into some kind of uh, instability. I mean, the problem with that theory is that actually in people who get motor neuron disease, it's, it's not always what, at the peak of their physical exercise. It may be some years later. And if someone at the age of 60 comes to me and says, well, you know, I used to play rugby at international level or run marathons 20 years ago, why didn't they get the motor neuron disease then? I mean, it's, it's clearly not simple. Uh, it could be that you acquire damage during those periods of exercise, or it could be that it's simply wrapped up in who you are and you're good at exercise, you're vulnerable to a particular disease, but the, the mechanism is not as simple as a one-to-one -one relationship. The exercise causes the disease. If we look at patients who get motor neuron disease, there is pretty good evidence that if you do exercise once you get the disease, it's only good. So I've seen patients who decide they're going to try and keep their muscles strong by 
essentially exercising for hours on end, and they do not get worse more quickly. Those people who tend to grind to a halt for whatever reason, maybe it's because they're finding it difficult to cope or they, they, they stay at home, they tend to get worse more quickly. If you look at animal models of motor neuron disease, it tends to be the case that if you exercise those animals, they tend to live a bit longer. So, you know, it just underlines the fact that doing the exercise itself may not be, you know, the mechanism by which the disease happens. But, you know, we have to be open-minded. It's possible. I'm, I'm absolutely clear in my own mind, and what I tell people is that we have absolutely no evidence at all at the moment that people should do less exercise, even if they've got a family history of motor neuron disease, or that once they get motor neuron disease, they should do less exercise. The opposite seems to be true in my mind. Thanks, Kevin. On on that note, and related to that note, um, there's a lot of work going on about this exercise-related uh, link to motor neuron disease and maybe something to do with the cellular repair mechanism not maybe functioning as well. Um, and and I, we find that very interesting. Dan Pam Shaw is doing a lot of work in that, and we are we are supporting some of that. Um, one of the other things that that um, that, that links us uh, obviously with with Doddy as our figurehead. Um, there's a lot of uh, reports of of early onset dementia um, from rugby injuries and concussion, multiple concussions of number of people, and. Um, it's it's important not to conflate the two. Uh, have, do you have any views about how we how we can ensure that that the, the, the people talking to us understand that these are not linked, and that one is a one is potentially a tr- trauma or traumatic event, and the other isn't. Another one is a cellular motor neuron disease, which obviously is very different. So that's a really crucial, and the key way in which we can approach this question is by actually looking at the brain and spinal cord of people who die of motor neuron disease and comparing it with uh, the brain and spinal cord of people who die of dementia. So when we look down the microscope, uh, so we we have been very lucky, I think, to have patients who are willing to donate their brain and spinal cord after they've died. We've got several hundred uh, brains and spinal cords from people with motor neuron disease and many from people with other diseases of the brain. And when you look down the microscope and you you see... the kind of signature of what's gone wrong. You see that certain types of protein have accumulated within the cells in a very characteristic way. So motion neuron disease is instantly recognizable to a neuropathologist. And if you take people who have developed dementia through traumatic brain injury, so boxing would be the most obvious example, but it can obviously happen in American football and in other contact sports you see a completely different sort of protein signature. So down the microscope, these two conditions, traumatic brain injury and motor neuron disease, can look completely different. So even though some patients with motor neuron disease do have dementia, they do not have the kind of dementia that arises from traumatic brain injury. So there is not at all uh, a very clear or strong relationship between trauma and motor neuron disease. I mean, it's perfectly possible that it's one of the steps in some people that leads to the disease. One has to be open-minded. But we we looked at this very carefully by studying 30 years' worth of NHS data. And, that, you know, many, many thousands of people with motor neuron disease, it's all logged on the NHS data system. And each patient with a diagnosis gets a code. So there's a code for motor neuron disease. So we looked at all the people in the last 30 years who have been coded with motor neuron disease. And we asked the question, are they more likely to be coded with head injury or fracture of a bone that gets them into hospital? And the answer is not. 
So as that large group, there's no signal that trauma really is a significant cause of motion hearing disease. But I would uh, you know, have to accept that in an individual case, given all the complexity I've talked about, it's not impossible that it could be one of the steps in the pathway that leads to the disease. But there is not really any significant signal of that. And as I say, the, the appearance down the microscope of those two conditions is quite different. I think it's um, it just reflects the fact that perhaps more research is required. And, you know, we're learning all the time about the disease. And the more we learn about the disease, the better chance we have of finding ways of of tackling it and, and giving people meaningful treatments and, and looking at uh, ways that we can work eventually towards a, a cure. And, and certainly one of the questions that came through when we asked for questions and is asked of us often is, is there a link between rugby and motor neuron disease? And I think it's inevitable because people see people um, with, you know, see high profile sports people who are then diagnosed. And, and of course, then inevitably we, we get asked this question, Kevin, which you know, I'm sure people come into your clinic and ask the same question. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, most of the people I see, the overwhelming majority of people I see have never played rugby or football really to any significant level in their lives. So, you know, the, the question are, rugby players, for example, more likely to get it, is quite difficult to answer. If you simply, you know, look at what's in front of you, it's very, very easy to, if you've decided or there's something going on, that you know, then you start to see it. You know, it, um, you can just do what's called confirmation bias. So you've got an idea, it's fixed in your head, and each time you see something that reinforces that idea, it just makes you feel stronger about it. That's not science. In science, you have to say, well, let us try and do a controlled experiment in an unbiased way. Let's take the medical history of all the rugby players that we can for the last 30 years and equivalent people of the same uh, level of physical fitness with the same characteristics doing a different sport, you know, which has not got contact. And can you see a difference? So that's a very, very hard thing to do. And um, I didn't think that experiment's been done. So the question is wide open, really. And I think that it's possible that uh, rugby players are slightly more susceptible, but I don't think it's been proved. And if it's if it is if it's true, it's likely to be quite a small signal, meaning that it's telling you something about the sort of triggers that can lead to motion neuron disease, but it's not the cause of motion neuron disease or the explanation for everybody's motion neuron disease, or even in that individual, the sole explanation for their motion neuron disease. It may be one element of it. So you know, it is. It is very difficult when you see what looks like evidence in front of you. And of course, you know, Doddy and Rob Burrow and others have done an amazing and very important job in raising awareness. So it tends to reinforce the idea there might be some connection. But I think I would say that it's at the moment very uncertain. Lots of other um, questions people have asked about the causes. And I think this comes from, you know, as as perhaps people with uh, somebody living with MND in their family or if they've been diagnosed themselves, they, they question whether it's their time in the military has, has had an impact uh, on their diagnosis. Has the COVID vaccine had an impact? And perhaps also lifestyle factors, you know, smoking. You know, we talked about physical activity, but smoking, drinking, anxiety, you know, it, we're always looking for things that will give us more information about what what, what has triggered autoimmunities. I think you've made, done a really fantastic job of explaining it's actually lots of things that have has to happen in order for you to to, to develop the disease. But 
you know, is there any evidence around serving time in the military or, or other environmental factors? I think the, the simple answer is that this is not, as far as we can tell, an environmental disease. So let me give you a simple piece of information that would tend to support that. If you look for spouse pairs, husband and wife pairs, of people who get motion neuron disease, they don't exist. I've never seen it. The best study comes from France, where they found seven pairs over 20 years, which is what you might expect through chance. So those people have shared the same environment for most of their adult life, typically. So that's one piece of evidence that it's not environmental. When people have done large-scale studies, um, it doesn't seem to be related to diet or in any, in any simple way. I mean, it's possible that eating more antioxidants protects you from dementia, from motion neuron disease, from any disease of aging. That's entirely possible. But there isn't any simple piece of uh, evidence that we call epidemiological studying large populations that really points to this. And there are many, many suggestions that there isn't really an environmental cause because the disease does not, by and large, vary in its incidence in one geographical location or another. And where it does, there tend to be fairly clear genetic reasons for that. The military question is complicated. Uh, there is evidence from the American military in the Gulf War of a slight excess of people with motion neuron disease. And that could easily be explained by the fact that these people are physically fit. Those people who actually serve in the military and then are actually um, sent to a battle zone are not going to be a random selection even of military recruits and certainly not a random selection of the population. So it kind of circles back to this idea of physical fitness being relevant. Um, but again, the signal is quite small, meaning that the relative risk, as we call it, of getting motion neuron disease if you're in the military is, is tiny. You know, it, most people who serve in the military will not get motion neuron disease. So, so I think, you know, it, it's just all this underlines the fact that there is not a simple cause here. And sadly, that means there's not going to be a simple treatment. It means we have to look at very complex ways of approaching the problem. Sean? Yeah, I just, I just wanted to um, uh, um, just reflect on some of the earlier stuff that you were talking about, Kevin. Um, do, you, do you think that they are, um, depending on, on, on uh, how, how patients present themselves, their age, um, the, 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 um, the, the, the period of time they live with the disease, um, if they present with bulbar versus limb, uh, do you think there are different types of motor neuron disease uh, or different phenotypes? And if there are, do you think that we, we could be looking at different kinds of treatment for those different types? So I think the one word answer to that is probably. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, you see, you see people in clinic who have clearly got a very aggressive disease process who are deteriorating very rapidly. And, you know, they, that feels a little different to people who may live for many years with disease. And so, for example, it's possible that in the rapidly progressive group, there's much more inflammation going on, which would require different sorts of treatment. So we, we are just about to embark on a large study where we're taking hundreds and hundreds of samples over many different time points from people in our clinic and studying them in great depth to look for protein signatures that might give us a clue as to which pathways are activated and might explain why some people progress rapidly and some people slowly. So the truth is we know more about the risk of why people get motion neuron disease than how they get it. 
we don't understand the biology behind all this variation. And that's a problem because I think that biology may be very important in unlocking some treatments. But another way, a sort of counterbalance to that, if you take a big family who've all got the same genetic mutation causing their disease, actually in, that, in any one family, so I've got families where grandpa got, you know, the disease started in his legs. And then the next generation, somebody got it in their speech. In the next generation, somebody got it in their respiratory system. So that's the same gene, and it's behaving completely differently. And that's very common in genetic forms of motor neuron disease. So it seems to be that you've got this background susceptibility, and how it actually starts, if you like, may depend on rather random factors. So, so those other steps that are required to you know, lead the disease to, be, to reveal itself they can occur anywhere in the nervous system in a random way. And that's why you get bulbar versus spinal onset. Those, those, where the, the onset, the site of onset of a disease does tend to uh, have an influence on the overall survival though. So, so you know, that, that even if it's a random factor will actually be a factor in, in how people do. I think the Thank key you. thing we've recognised is there has been real progress in the last number of years uh, in our understanding of, of motor neuron disease through our better understanding of the human genome and through our better understanding of the disease itself. And I think there are all sorts of factors have played into that. But I think the fact that we now have got such a focus on the disease and we've got this amazing group of, of researchers in the UK who are world leading in what they do, you know, there does seem to be some optimism around where we are with that, Kevin. I think it would be nice to end on that just to give us an idea of where you think we are at the moment. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I mean, 20 years ago, when I first started going to international conferences, I think, you know, we were swimming around in a bit of a fog, to be honest. We had one gene that seemed to be helpful. It only affected a tiny proportion of people. In the fact that we now know that gene mutation, which is called SOD1, is quite different from most people with motor neuron disease. And in the last 20 years, we have identified the key proteins that seems to be going wrong, a whole range of genes and pathways that tell you why this involuntary motor system is vulnerable. We're beginning to understand how you might separate out people in different ways according to the way their disease is behaving. We have better models in the laboratory so that we can start to actually test drugs in a way that gives us more confidence they might work in, in humans. We have more than one drug coming through. I mean, these, the drugs that are emerging at the moment, by and large, uh, are having the kind of effect that is relatively modest. But we hope that in combination, when you add them all together, you might start to, to produce some really significant benefits. And we have targeted genetic therapies for those pe for people who have particular kinds of gene mutations. So we're involved in a trial where we're injecting in bits of DNA into the nervous system to block the genetic error. Now that's in its early stages, but I do believe that that is a kind of treatment that could have a massive impact in the future. So I think we've moved from cloud of uncertainty into a sort of roadmap that actually tells us where ultimately the treat real treatments are going to come from. And I can only, uh, at this point, thank um, the Doddy Foundation for supporting the work that we're doing and trying to accelerate drug discovery. It's been in incredibly important. Well, thank you, Kevin, and, and for all that you do. And um, it leads nicely into what we hope will be our next um, Ask the Expert uh, event. And I think 
people are interested about what's happening in research and the opportunity for clinical trials and some of the, the, the treatments and drugs that are coming onto those platform trials. So, But we, we will make sure you're all well informed as to where we go next with our series. But I think it's been fantastic to kick things off with our eminent guest, uh, Kevin, a great friend to the Foundation. We really appreciate you talking to us this evening. Uh, and Sean McGrath as well. Thank you for your input. Um, there were a number of questions came in that we weren't able to to cover uh, today, today, but we will certainly try and do that in uh, a story on our website uh, in the coming days. And again, if you want to share today's um, discussion with friends, the link will be available through our um, YouTube channel, uh, Twitter and Facebook, and we will put it up onto the Dodcast platform as well. Um, so just thank you so much for your attention tonight. Thanks for becoming engaged with what we're trying to do. And thank you again to my guests. Great to have you with us this evening. And until next time, we'll see you then. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.